Hello, Hope Church family. I am so excited to be back sharing the word with you as we continue in Matthew. Now, this week is going to be the end of Matthew chapter 4, so go ahead and turn there now if you would like. But it's also the introduction into what we're going to be doing throughout the summer in the next couple months. And I am so excited about it. We've been working hard for a while putting it together. Uh, just some awesome people, but we'll tell you more about that coming up. Discipleship is one of those things, and just so you know, I have to slow down because I get so excited talking about it. But discipleship is something that I am extremely passionate about, and I want to explain to you why. Unfortunately, I believe that it has in some ways been a lost art. Uh, it has been something that we'll see in a moment, something that God, that Jesus specifically told us to do with no loopholes, no opt-out clauses. If you are a follower of him, you are called to disciple. Uh, my wife says that there's this thing called the discipleship unicorn that so many of us can find ourselves chasing after. We look that this is what discipleship should look like. It should be this and this and this, but it doesn't actually exist. So we end up, if you're like me as an adult, wondering where is the discipleship? Uh, how do I find discipleship? Something that I often go back to when I'm struggling through uh, how do we do this for our church or what is the church supposed to look like is I examine closed countries. And by that, I mean the persecuted church in other countries. What do they do? How do they operate and what lessons can we learn from them here in the Western world or more specifically the United States of America? And something that they do, and when you look at these closed countries where discipleship or the church in and of itself, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel-believing believers, that it's growing in some of the most persecuted countries in the world. And it's growing at an extreme cost to those who come to know Jesus, costing them their lives. It puts them in prison. It costs them their families. What do they do? In a lot of the countries where they're heavily persecuted, Sometimes groups of three or four aren't allowed to meet without the government knowing. But yet, the church is blowing up. Not in a bad way, in a good way. The church is growing. They're adding more and more believers. More people are going to prison. More people are being killed and persecuted for their faith, but they continue to grow. But then we look at the Western world. Uh, again, specifically the United States. We have massive church buildings. We have incredible sound equipment. We have unbelievable online presences and social media and, and these unbelievable worship artists and you name it. And yet, every year, more churches close than open. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen Bible colleges close their doors for good at an alarming rate. And most people would tell you that those who consider themselves Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians, the numbers go down in almost every city across our entire country. And I think the answer to a lot of these, and it's not just simply this, but it's a lack of discipleship. It's a lack of discipleship in following after Jesus and, and trusting and relying on him alone and not material possessions or things for our faith. It's a lack of faith in walking in Christ and it's a lack of obedience and following him and the plan that he has laid out for us, this plan of discipleship. So it's not a quick answer. It's not an easy answer. So tonight I just view it as the launching point for what we're going to be doing over the next three months. 
Now, last week, Cam was preaching um, just before this in Matthew chapter 4, starting verse 12 through 17. And we see Jesus, we see John the Baptist arrested, and then Jesus starts to preach, repent for the kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom has come near. And so now we're diving into, now we see Jesus begin his earthly ministry. And what does that look like? Before I do that, I want to share with you something that hopefully will become very commonplace. And I've realized in, in talking about discipleship recently at a different church, we've been outside this week for one year. We've been outside for one year, and there's some things in, about Hope Church that we have always said or repeated or shown like a discipleship chart, but I don't think we've shown it in the last year. And in the last year, we've grown. We've had a lot of new people coming, and yet, as pastor, I feel that I failed them in not going back to these basics that we should have been living out. So I apologize to you, Hope Church family. Uh, we have ourselves are guilty of this. And I also want you to know right up front, when I talk about a church not doing discipleship well, I'm looking at us and I'm wondering what does Hope Church need to do? Uh, this sounds bad and I hope you understand, but I'm not responsible to God for other churches. I'm responsible to God for Hope Church. And so this is something that we want to not just take one or two weeks on, but we want to take some time on and, and really focus on what is discipleship. So our discipleship chart uh, is, is quite simply just a simple, simplified way of explaining how we view discipleship, how we define it and what it is. So we define discipleship as helping someone move one step closer in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this includes two parts to it. Sometimes people think that discipleship is just helping somebody in the church grow, somebody who already knows Christ, somebody who's made Jesus the forgiver of their sins and their leader of their life grow. But it's really two parts. Discipleship includes helping people enter into a relationship with Jesus, which we would call evangelism, but it also is helping those who already know him to continually grow in their relationship with Jesus. And we call that progressive sanctification. That's how we shorten that up there. But that's really what it means. It's just a continual growth. That word sanctification means sanctify is set apart for a special purpose. So how are you continually growing in the area that God has specifically designed you for? How are you growing in that in Christ likeness? And I think it's very important for you to understand that because as we see, and I'm actually going to jump. So huge spoiler alert. This is the end of Matthew, which we might not get to for sometime. But Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. Actually, I'm going to jump up to 16 because we're going to start seeing the disciples show up at the Sea of Galilee. And this is where it also, uh, Jesus' earthly ministry comes to an end in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. He's no longer there. Spoiler alert. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a lot of promises there. In fact, one of our guest speakers is going to be talking about that at the end of the month in June. But this is the Great Commission, as some people call it, the Great Omission. But this is the Great Commission. This is an uh, a officer in charge giving a direct command for those below him to carry it out. 
And in the military, if you're giving a direct command, you carry it out. Really no, especially on a battlefield, no questions being asked, you carry it out. We're gonna talk more about that next week. But this is the command, go and make disciples. So now we're gonna rewind to where we're gonna be tonight in Matthew chapter four. This is where we see the discipleship ministry of Jesus start to form, start to take place. And I wanna answer the question of what does this look like for us? Right up front, we are not Jesus. We are not perfect. So it's going to look differently. But Jesus lived out. He lived an example of what he's called us to do. So let's read, starting in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18 through the rest of the chapter. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. There is a lot in this short few verses. The first thing I want you to understand is that Jesus didn't need the disciples. Jesus recognized they needed him. Again, Jesus didn't need the disciples, but Jesus recognized that they needed him. That they were going to become Jesus' strategy for building the kingdom of God. More about that in a minute. And I, but the, the picture of discipleship that we see here is that discipleship is simply a partnership where a sinful human being partners with the Savior. And by partners, I mean understands they are a sinner and confesses their sin and invites Jesus to be the leader of their life. Partners with the Savior to have a direct relationship with God who empowers this new creation through the Holy Spirit to bring glory to a perfect and almighty God. Again, discipleship is simply a partnership where a sinful human being partners with the Savior to have a direct relationship with God who empowers the new creation through the Holy Spirit to bring glory to a perfect and almighty God. We talk about this all the time in Corinthians where Paul says, God uses the imperfect. God uses a sinful human being to bring glory to himself simply to show his power. And that is what discipleship is is we have to recognize our place in this. We are not Jesus. We are imperfect. We are sinners saved by grace through faith because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. We need him. There is no perfect discipler. There's just people who obey him. Now there's a couple key phrases 
in this passage that we just read that Jesus uses or that is said about Jesus that I want to look at. And these are going to be our main points for this evening. These are very simple. These are ways that we can understand how simple it is for us to begin this discipleship process. That it's not a magical unicorn we'll never catch, that it is very simple. The first point, the first thing that the text sees, point number one is he saw. He saw. Jesus saw. Look at how Jesus sees people different than we do. The way that Jesus looks at them is different than how we maybe used to looking at people. Look at what he's in Matthew chapter 9. Again, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus sees people differently than we do. He had compassion on them. Do we see crowds with compassion? This last year, we've seen a lot of crowds on television, on social media, wherever you get your news source, or, and, or maybe you were there as part of the crowds. We've seen crowds protesting, crowds rioting. We've seen crowds doing all sorts of horrible things. We've seen peaceful crowds. What was your reaction? What was the emotion that you felt watching the different crowds? Maybe sometimes you wished you could be there. Maybe you were there in some of those crowds. Maybe you were angry at them. Maybe you were furious because they disagreed with what you believe. Maybe you cheered them on. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Jesus saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If Jesus had compassion on the people who sinned against him continually, if Jesus had compassion on the people who he was there to die for them, not because of what he had done, but because of what they had done, and he knew the only way for them to understand forgiveness and freedom, the only way for them to shed the guilt and the shame that they lived with as they worked and as they tried to do whatever they could to make it through the day under an, a government that abused them after they would go through being taxed and whatever it is, Jesus saw them and he had compassion on them, knowing that he would die for them so that they can have hope, so that they can understand forgiveness. Jesus was perfect. You and I are not. When you and I look at a crowd, we should remember we are also a sinner. That we should have the same compassion on them because how much more so do we understand our need for a Savior than they do? How much more should we understand our need for real hope, our need for joy and our need for love and our need for forgiveness and you fill in the blank of what God provides for us through Jesus Christ? When we see people, when we see our coworkers, we see people in our neighborhood, what emotions do you feel? Do you have compassion on them? Because they are sheep without a shepherd. They do not know Jesus. 
Jesus saw in this passage here in Matthew 4, Jesus saw his future followers. Jesus saw the men who would start to build the kingdom when he left earth. Jesus saw the men who would die for his name. Jesus saw the men who were willing to give up everything because of what Jesus had done for them. They could not tell people about it. They could not stop telling people about it. The world saw them as smelly fishermen in this passage. The world saw them as tax collectors, as uh, zealots or, or terrorists, as that word became known as. The world saw them differently. The world saw them one way, and I imagine you and I would see them the same way. But Jesus saw his disciples. Jesus saw the way, his strategy of how the kingdom was going to be built. Why? Because it is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus continually chooses those that are most unlikely. You've probably heard us say that before on numerous occasions, but it's a good reminder. Jesus sees differently than we do. Jesus saw his future followers as the laborers that he says to pray for in this passage in Matthew 9. These are the laborers. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. And in chapter 10, he tells them, by the way, you're the laborers I'm sending out into the harvest. The disciples were the laborers that they were praying for. You and I are the laborers that we should be praying for. Lord, give me the wisdom, give me the strength and the courage to go out and represent you well as I go out to tell others about you, to live differently representing a kingdom that is an upside-down kingdom as I serve my community. He saw these future followers as his laborers. That's you. And that's me. We are the laborers. But are you willing to labor to reach the harvest? There's work involved. There's difficulties involved. Manual labor isn't easy. Manual labor can take its toll on you. Are we willing to labor? Because that's how Jesus saw people. He's sending us out into the harvest where we live, work, and play every day. Are we viewing the world as Jesus views the world? The second thing that Jesus says in this passage, point number two, is follow me. Follow me. The task of reaching the harvest seems impossible and too big. Jesus saw the big picture, that these disciples would change the world. The reason this happened is because they simply followed. Jesus said, follow me. They followed. They left everything and followed Jesus with reckless abandon. They went against everything that the world would tell you is important. They followed after Jesus. They got out of the boat with their dad. They left the tax collector's booth behind. They went and they followed Jesus. And ultimately, it would cost just about every single one of them their life but they will tell you to this day that it was worth it and they wish they could have done more. We must simply follow Jesus. After all he has done and is doing and he promises to do for us, how can we not carry out this simple command to follow him? This isn't on us. It's a promise of God. Follow Jesus. He will take care of the rest. The disciple said, I'm a smelly fisherman. I'm uneducated. What do I do? Follow me. 
Wherever you are at and you're saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not whatever it is, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. The disciples started small, and over the years they followed. They watched and observed, not knowing what lay in store for them. Some of them thought Jesus was going to make himself king over an earthly government. They all had different views of what Jesus was, but they followed, they observed, they watched, and when Jesus was arrested, they fled. But after Jesus rose from the dead and left the earth, they would change the world. The same is how we disciple. We follow Jesus. We invite others into our life to watch, observe, ask dumb questions, ask tough questions that we don't have the answers to. All of those things because we don't know what God's plan is for us as the discipler or for them as those being discipled. If you feel unqualified, great. You're in a good place. Because the disciples were too. God has a plan for you and those he has put in your life. And it starts by simply following Jesus. My third point is this. Jesus says that in the text that if you have the the modern NIV, it's I will send you out to fish for people. But the better translated way is it says, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. One of the greatest phrases that you have never thought about is Jesus saying, or at least for me, I will make you. This isn't about what we have to make ourselves into. We follow Jesus and he will make. He is the creator. He created you specifically for a purpose that he has set up for you. Remember, your past doesn't define you. God does. It's a phrase we try to repeat all the time because so often we can get our identity wrapped up in other things. We work hard to, to form our identity as our, as our occupation or as our parental status, our marriage status, you name it. We have all these different things fighting for us to find our identity in, but God says, your past doesn't define you. I do. You are a child of the Almighty God, and I have designed and created you and allowed you to experience things in your life for a specific purpose. Just follow me, and I will show you what that is. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you everything I have designed you for, to the, to the way that I wanted you to be. I will make you. Jesus asks us to follow him. This is where we find our identity. But Jesus didn't call the disciples to do what he wanted them to do. He also committed himself to train and equip them, and this took time. So he calls them and says, I will make you. But that was a time-involved process. He didn't take out a flip chart. 10 things to do to make better disciples and do it. No, he took time, probably three years. It took him three years of them observing, traveling with him, watching him heal, watching him preach, watching him do everything he did. The conversations they had as they were walking places like we see in John, the conversations that he had about a fig tree, the, all of these little things they watched and they observed. And when I say it's okay if people ask you dumb questions, the disciples asked a lot of dumb questions. In fact, Jesus said, you're pretty simple-minded at some points. 
They also asked tough questions. Jesus asked them tough questions to see how they could think through a response. But Jesus invited them into their life. I talked with several people actually just this week about what stood out to you about discipleship in your life. And it was, well, these people invited me into their home. These people invited me just to watch. I got to watch them. And I can speak from experience. People that were some of the disciples who stood out in my life. I was a single guy, almost 30 years old. And I just watched a married couple with two young kids. And he said, just ask questions. Come over, watch a college football game. You're going to see me and my wife getting arguments. You're going to see us probably discipline our kids wrong. Just ask questions. We'll tell you why we do it. We tell, we'll apologize to you when we mess up. But I was invited into their life. That meant so much. Watching college football games. Watching whatever. We played sports together. Whatever it was, we did it together and I observed. And I could ask questions. And they could ask me questions. Discipleship is so easy. It's inviting people into your life. But it's also God making you a discipler through that. It is Jesus saying, I will make you. You just do and follow my example. Fishers of men. This is an interesting term. Jesus called 12 different disciples, and we don't have stories on all of them. But here in Matthew, he calls four fishermen, two sets of brothers. Uh, Andrew and Peter, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And it's kind of funny, is it? The text says, and Zebedee was there with them. And they just left. They just left Zebedee in the boat by himself. But he calls these fishermen, I think, for a very interesting term. And he says, hey, fishermen, and it's a play on words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he didn't say this with any of the other occupations of the people that he called to follow him. Matthew, follow me and I'll make you a tax collector of souls. He didn't say that. He didn't do that with any of the other men that we know of. But specifically, I will make you fishers of men. And I find it very interesting because of what entails with a fisherman and what that has in common with what we are to be doing here as those going out and building the kingdom. So just a couple things that I want to point out. The first thing we see uh, that we see in both a fisherman and a fisher of man, number one is the character of patience. A good fisherman is patient and knows how to wait, knowing that there are fish, and he will eventually catch something. I am a terrible fisherman. I enjoy going out and fishing, but it's normally because I enjoy whoever I'm spending time with and just chatting, even though they keep telling me to be quiet because they're trying to catch fish. But a good fisherman is patient. He's Number one, he's patient. He's willing to wait. Number two, a fisherman has to have perseverance. And, and I'm not talking about somebody just going out on a boat on the course of a weekend. I mean, like, this is how they make their living type fishermen. Perseverance. Uh, sometimes fishermen don't catch anything, yet they don't give up. Remember, Jesus called Peter after Peter had gone all night without catching anything. And Peter was an experienced fisherman, yet sometimes even he came up empty. But when Jesus told him to go back out, he did. And I always have this picture in his mind of a carpenter is telling, I don't tell you how to build stuff, dude. Like, and you're going to tell me, I've been out all night. When I tell you there's no fish, I'm telling you there's no fish. But Peter, 
In my mind, he reluctantly goes back out. And he couldn't get the fish into his boat and they were breaking the nets. When it comes to fishers of men, just know, and we are actually going to have one whole message just on grace-filled discipleship, you will be let down and you will let others down. But Jesus says, go back out. Do not give up. Persevere. Long-suffering. Is God not long-suffering with us? How much more so should we live that out as a, as a living in the spirit in Galatians 5 of long-suffering and patient and perseverance going out? And you go back out and you throw that net again. You mend the net and you go back out and you throw it out. You persevere when it comes to fishing for men. Never give up. Number three, fishermen were trained over time. They were trained over time. James and John are out with their dad. Think about this. Zebedee has probably been a fisherman his whole life. His father had probably been a fisherman and who knows for how many generations. James and John grew up in a boat with their dad learning. It took a lifetime. And now here they are, probably adults, with their dad still learning all the tricks to the trade, if you will learning the best spots and where to go in what weather and, and how to handle the seashore and what to do. There was so much involved and yet they learned over time. And that's how it is with discipleship. It is not something quick. It happens over time. It's asking questions. It's following the example. A fisherman is always learning. How much more so should a fisher of men always be learning, always going back and asking God, having being asked another question to try to figure out because that person I'm discipling asked some really tough questions. And so it's driving you back to the word of God. It's driving you back to time in prayer. The next attribute is courage. The Sea of Galilee had claimed many boats and many fishermen's lives. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level and storms could literally come out of nowhere. There were no meteorologists, there were no, and there were no things that we have now, but this being a commercial fisherman, if you will, or a professional fisherman was dangerous work. It took courage to go back out there. You had a boat and you could see clouds rising, but you also had a family you had to feed. You go out, you go out and it takes courage. It was a dangerous profession and it still is. Even my youth pastor growing up, his father was a commercial fisherman, uh, king crab fisherman off the coast of Alaska and he was killed. He was swept overboard and was killed. And that happens a lot. I think it's still like the number three most dangerous profession in the world is king crab fisherman. So it's a dangerous profession. It takes courage to go out and it takes courage to go out and make fishers of men. You will be hurt. It will be costly at times but you do it. The disciples were courageous sometimes for Peter, more so than he should have been. But they went out, and so they did as disciples of Christ. They continued to go out and demonstrate courage. And the last thing that we see in these last couple verses is we see Jesus and what he did with the disciples. He called them to him, but then Jesus went out and it says he was teaching, proclaiming, and healing. He was teaching in the synagogues, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he was healing every disease, and the disciples watched. You see it here in chapter 4, we read it again in chapter 9. Jesus is going out, he's going out into the harvest, and he's meeting the needs of the people that he can. You and I 
may not be very good at healing people. Jesus could. Jesus went out and met their needs. He demonstrated that living in a kingdom way, representing the kingdom of God, we live differently. We meet the needs of the people around us. We show them that there is a different way, that we are there to serve them. It is an upside down kingdom. We do things differently and we demonstrate what it is to know God through our actions. We go into these different communities representing the kingdom of God. We go into our different workplaces, our different neighborhoods, our homes, wherever God in his sovereignty has placed you, you go there on mission for God to go and be fishers of men. And as we continue to go through this summer, we're going to see different examples that Jesus taught the disciples who are with him, but the examples are still there for us to follow every day in our lives as we continue to go out. So again, this summer we are going to take time examining discipleship and how we can implement it in different ways in our lives. So this isn't something we do, but rather it's who we are. This is what should be setting us apart. When we talk about building the kingdom of God, we always say it's done through the strategy of the local church. But the strategy of the local church should be to be making disciples. So when we say, Matthew, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done, his will is that we are making disciples. And as we make disciples, the church is functioning as it should be. And we see people coming to know Christ and we see them growing in the relationship with God. And then they go out and they're also representing and all of a sudden the kingdom is growing. We are building the kingdom of God together as a united front going out and making disciples. So two things that we can do right now. Two things that I'm asking you to start doing this week. Um, In person, we'll be handing out what we call our Pi Squared cards. Pray, invest, invite. On the back, there are five blank places. And what we want you to do is just to write down five names of people that you know. Preferably somebody local in your community. You can get another one for people outside of your community. But the reason that we're going to do this is all summer long, we want you to start praying for these five people that might not know God. We want you to pray for them. We want you to find ways to invest in them. How are you serving them? How are you going out of your way to demonstrate that there is a relationship investment that you are willing to make in them? And then we invite them. The most important thing that we can invite them to is to knowing God. Invite them into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, making Jesus the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. So we pray, we invest, we invite. We invite them out for coffee. We invite them to church. We invite them just to start meeting once a week or once every other week to start reading the Bible together. Pray, invest, invite. Secondly, if we go back to Matthew chapter 9, I want to just read the one verse over again. It says, starting in verse 35, Jesus went out through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Matthew 9:38 says, ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You're the worker. 
I'm the worker. We are the laborers being sent out into the field. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your cell phone. Don't act like you haven't been looking at it the whole time anyways. I'm sure you're just reading your Bible. But I want you to set an alarm for 9.38. And at 9.38, when that alarm goes off, I want you to pray for your Pi Squared card. I want you to pray for the harvest. I want you to pray for other people. And we can come together at this time, 9.38 a.m. and p.m., and we're going to pray together as a unified body. There's nothing magical about this number, but it's a strategy. It's a strategy. It's just the time that we can remember. It's 9.38. I'm going to pray my alarm's going off. I'm going to pray for the five people on this list. I'm going to pray for asking God to be working in their life and my life as I come alongside of them, as I shoot them a text asking how they're doing. So again, two simple things. Grab a card, email us, fill one out by hand, and set an alarm, 9.38 a.m. and p.m., a time when we can start praying together for the harvest. This summer, every week, we are going to go over an area of discipleship that you can immediately implement into your life. So view this summer every week that you are getting another tool for your tool belt of discipleship. And together, we will learn. And it's messy, and it needs to be grace-filled. But we can do this together.